welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music year. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So this week, I'm going back home to visit my family for the first time in two years. So I am going to model taking a bit of a break by replaying a previous awesome episode featuring the one and only Alice Bag. I'm a one-person show over here, so in order to like really officially vacate, I think that's important. So I'll be I'll be still checking in on social media uh, here and there, and but I, I do want you to really deeply appreciate this episode because it's so good, um, and it's interesting. I was listening back to the original episode a little bit, and. It was released March 24th of 2020, and it was like right when schools closed down and everything was starting to shut down due to COVID. So the intro was pretty bleak, and uh, I could even hear the like the fear in my voice while I was trying to sort of be hopeful and process everything that was happening. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And, you know, of course, we know how things have gone over the last year. And, you know, I never could have predicted it in whatever direction it went. And, yeah, it's pretty wild. But I'm, I'm excited to be able to finally go back home and see all my relatives. And, yeah, so I hope you're also getting a little bit of break over the summer as well. Anyway, excited for more folks to hear this conversation, as I would mentioned, with Alice Bag, who is one of my favorite people. But first, I want to thank Midriff's sponsors, uh, let's get into it. So first, Earthquaker Devices. So recently, Earthquaker has shared a number of videos featuring just a bunch of rad artists such as Jessica Fennelly of Date Night, an interview with Julian uh, Saperini uh, of No No Boy and Michelle Zauner of Japanese Breakfast, sessions with TimeCAD and Aya Simone, and some in-depth info about the functionality of their pedals, which I personally always find really useful. For for example, I have been using their Palisades pedal for years, which basically has like every variation of Tube Screamer that you would ever want. And every time they do a dive in, I learn something new, which is great. And it's, you know, it's not a complicated pedal, but there's a lot going on. So I really, uh, I appreciate learning more about like, you know, which of the settings has which diodes, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's good to know. As usual, you can check out Earthquaker Devices and all of their amazing pedals. Handmade at Akron, Ohio at EarthquakerDevices.com. Up next, we have DistroKid. If you are a musician and you want to get your music out there to more people, but you're not quite sure how to do it, DistroKid can help you. So DistroKid basically puts your music into online stores, right? And streaming services such as iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many more. And I know that can be very confusing if you are not a label. So you get 100% of the income. They don't take any fees at all, which is awesome. And it allows you to do customized splits to different band members or musicians per song via this thing they call Teams. And, you know, that's something you probably need. If you have more than one project, you can sign up for that, too. And it's a really great option just, yeah, to get your music out there with or without a label. Maybe you are a label and you want to use them to do it. That's great. They'll add your lyrics to services for you, and you can even do like a fancy global release with everything getting released at the exact same time around the globe, regardless of time zone. So it's it's pretty cool. So you can use the link distrokid.com slash VIP slash midriff to get a 7% discount, and I'll include the link in the show notes as well. Last but not least, I want to mention my buddies Adam and Jen at Stompbox Sonic in Boston. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. 
Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. And I am still loving the pedal they helped me pick out. It was exactly what I looked for, and they can help you find what you are looking for, too. Whether or not you are in Boston, they can do it virtually. If you are interested in a consultation or you just want to see their cool, unique selection, check them out on social media or at stompbacksonic.com. These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them, too. You can find links in the show notes to the sponsors, to Midriff's Instagram, Facebook pages, website, all of that business. So, as I mentioned, today we'll be talking with the fabulous Alice Bagg, who is just such a crushingly amazing influence in the spaces of punk and feminism. She is a literal punk legend. In 1977 in L.A., she was a member of the punk band The Bags, um, and you know they were featured in the seminal punk documentary The Decline of Western Civilization. If you want a real, real cheat, treat, I recommend checking that video out on YouTube. It is just so good. And she's just done just consistently amazing things since then, whether it comes to like rad records and collaborations with basically a jillion musicians like Alice and Wolf, Kathleen Hanna, writing amusing books, uh, you know, documenting her life in the early punk scene through her social media uh, and her books, her, you know, combination. She just has this like joy and, you know, in her music and then like through the aggression in her performance, it's just it's all it's a combo. The package is real. It's great. And now she's documenting her move to Mexico City on a new Instagram page called Punk Expats at Punk Expats. So you should probably check that as well. Uh, so after that, you can stick around for some new content. I am getting in a little bit around the topic of basically like understanding the concerns that companies have around <laughs> getting into, you know, beginning the diverse hiring journey. I'm using air quotes, uh, diverse hiring. So there are many common issues that folks have in those in that situation when they first start that process. Uh, so I'll be getting into that a little bit. So with that, here's my interview with Alice. Welcome to Midriff. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Hillary. I'm. It's nice to virtually be here with you as well. <laughs> Across the country, it's magic. We live in amazing times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the magic is that we were able to make this work at all. I know. Uh, Our for listeners, challenges. Listeners, this is a gear podcast. Let's just say there were some um, gear snafus that occurred prior to this, but we hopefully have made it all work. And, you know, we're coming here today to you through the virtues of modern technology. Here we are. And perseverance. That's right. And heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so I wanted to start off quickly for folks who um, maybe aren't as familiar with with you, which if they're not, they should be because you are the best. And also, by the way, possibly the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life. I don't know oh. how it's possible. Honestly, oh, you're hanging out with the wrong people then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell them you've said that. Uh, but they... Uh, but honestly, like, I feel like every time I talk to you, I'm just like, Alice is the best. Um, it just makes me happy and feel better in my life. So, so thank you for being such a kind and great and generous person with your time and your life and experience in music. So with that, thank you, you Hillary. You know, I mean, I, it really, it all, it's all because you offered to play guitar with me. So you actually like you were the one who was nice to me. I was doing a reading and I asked you to learn some of my songs and play with me. And the fact that you were so kind to me and agreed to do that is what propelled our, our friendship. Our friendship. I know it's, you know, it's really funny about that. I never check my Facebook memories. I almost always forget that they're even there. And uh, I just happened to look today and you know what popped up? Was a picture oh. from that show from us performing in the basement library <laughs> and, and it was literally eight years ago oh today. My God. Wow. Today. I know what, isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it, that's really cool. Yeah. So eight years ago today, uh, that was when I first got to meet Alice. Um, and you know, I, I played some songs when, uh, when you were on your book tour for, for violence girl. And it was yeah, fabulous. and I love the fact that you were just like, yeah, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to play with you, even though we probably won't have a chance to rehearse together. We're just going to dive in. Well, the thing that's funny about that is that, like, I, I don't consider myself like a, you know, a session musician or anything like that. Like, I can barely read music at all. Uh, and so <laughs> so I know other people who can do that and, like, jump in and they, that's just their jam. They do that all the time. And I'm like, I'm not that person. So it was uh, so I appreciate you taking a leap of faith on me. <laughs> I think it worked out. <laughs> then it was fun. So, OK, so with that, let's let's go back in time for a minute. Maybe you want to uh, introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, uh, a little bit about your background with music for folks. Okay, my name is Alice Bag. I'm a queer feminist punk musician and author. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I got into punk rock in the mid-70s. I grew up in East LA. I went to an all-girl Catholic high school, and I still remember we had off-campus lunch, and I remember going to a uh, the local liquor store and picking up a magazine that just said punk on the cover. It was a punk magazine from New York. And uh, I believe it was 1976. I was senior in, in high school. And that started my whole, you know, obsession with, with punk rock. And I formed a band uh, and yeah, there's, there's more, yeah, we'll get into all that. <laughs> but that's a great, that's a great story. I love yeah. just like the, the visual of just a, a magazine that just says punk, and that's it. So, so that's a little bit about how you got started. Let's let. Or what are you particularly working on right now? Yeah, I uh, I just recorded a new album, and I I say just because it hasn't come out yet. I actually recorded it last summer, but it's been you know getting mixed, and I was looking for another record company. Uh, I love my old record company, but I wanted somebody local and I have a really good company now that I 
I'm loving working with. We have a lot of interaction. They're called In the Red. So I have a new album. I'm really excited about that. And it sounds a little bit different from my past two albums because I had an experience over the summer where I got to go to San Antonio and work with the ladies from the band Fair. And uh, we, they have a new guitarist. We started listening to some, some of their new songs. And uh, we drove together from San Antonio to El Paso to this like sleepover recording studio called Sonic Ranch. And we spent, oh, um, you know, like a week there working on their new songs, recording their new songs. And that whole experience was so exciting for me. Uh, all their songs were like upbeat punk rock, but also they were so multifaceted. You know, it wasn't like, you know, one, two, three, four, like you, we, a lot of times, I, I think that when people think of punk rock, they think that it's very basic and that it has to not have a lot of depth. And their music really did have depth. It had like some really cool hooks. It had some really meaningful lyrics and just a lot of nuance to it. So I was inspired to come home and record my own album and to also uh, try and keep it more punk rock but multifaceted punk rock. When you say multifaceted, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that like my past few, my past couple of albums, I've really left things wide open. I write my music on GarageBand and my GarageBand app makes, so I can use real instruments. I have like, I have lots of gear here at home that I record real instruments on, but I also have access to like a string quartet or, <laughs> uh, you know, Asian instruments that I don't even know the name of, right. Or, uh, brass instruments and I can play them using the keyboard. Yeah. Do you use, do you use the MIDI and, and, and so you're, so you're recording all of this as, as sort of like a demo then, or, and then you bring it into another studio. Yes. So I record, so I write the songs, uh, I, I demo them using my GarageBand app and I write all the different parts and I, I feel like I, I'm arranging everything and getting it all just exactly how I want. And then I have to go out and record it in a, in a regular studio with, and I want to use real musicians because, you know, you can't replace the feel of a real violin with, uh, you know, well, I mean, for me, I, I like, Depends what you're I going like when people for. add their own flavor yeah no I mean I, I and I love <laughs> my demos too don't get me wrong I'm very happy with my demos when I present them but a lot of times somebody plays it and they just mm. play it in a slightly different way they add their own personal touches to it and um or they suggest something completely different and I love it so that's what I mean by like though that was my experience with my past two albums is that I just would have mm. no limits I just left it wide open and I ended up with stuff that was really it required the listener to take a journey with me that some people might've been ready for. And some might've said like, why isn't <laughs> she doing her punk rock stuff? So for this one, I wanted to be able to have that versatility, but to keep it more honed in on the instrumentation that I usually use in live performances. So uh, I had to figure out how to be more creative with less instruments. And also I decided to have like, instead of like, in the past, I have friends who sing and who have beautiful voices and can come in and like hit every note that I can't hit. 
and do do my backups beautifully, right? But this time I just decided to ask my band because my band sings with mm-hmm. me whenever we play live. And they kill it every time. It's like, it's about their energy and their enthusiasm. And they know the song super well because they've been playing it on the road. So I wanted to have that this time. So even though um, we do have some harmonies, they're not as complex, but they're like, they just feel different. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like, (laughs) yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I like the idea that you're like kind of putting some constraints on it as a way to like kind of um, in some ways, it's almost like a challenge or a test, but also in some ways, um, I don't know, makes you more creative because you're, you have to stick within particular, particular parameters um, when you're doing the writing. Uh, which I, I love. I think that's a great experiment to do, to be like, okay, this is what it, this is where we're, what we're working with here. I'm not going to add a symphony. You know, how can we make the symphony or the feeling of the symphony with just a guitar or just, you know, whatever. So um, I, I think that's great. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, if when you, if you're thinking about like the recording process compared to a live performance, because you're doing a more live oriented record, does that recording process, is that going to be, is that different then? Yeah, I think it is different. I mean, I like in the past, I've really divided things up by like I grouped songs and I chose my teams of musicians to work on particular songs based on what I thought were their strengths or the feel that they usually play. So um, this time I just used my band that I, the one that I tour with most often, I do sometimes go on tour and I have to use subs. And usually it's just someone that's super talented and is willing to fill in with me. But um, I feel like my band that I tour with knows me really well because they've been, you know, they've been working with me, living with me, you know, spending a lot of time with me. So, um, so I feel that, and they bring their own experiences to it. So so yeah, it was a lot more of a band uh, of a band experience than other other things have been like you know me and they're telling people, you know here's I, like I'll, I'll write charts for them and I'll tell them exactly like sing this this way use this instrument, um, and and this this one was much more um, I think there was much more band input. It sounds more like collaborative and cohesive sort of. Yeah, it was very, it was, I felt like it was more collaborative, but I'm still bossy, you know, I'm still like, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm still in there with the, with the producer, uh, you know, saying like, let's use this, let's not use this, let's, you know, let's try this with this effect on it or, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's still a lot that can happen after you lay down, you know, an instrument, a track. Mm-hmm. that um, there's a lot of modification that can happen post the recording uh, that I've, I've learned from just working with some really good producers. And my, my favorite producer is Lisa Flores, who mm-hmm. I worked on my last three records with. Mm-hmm. Do you have an uh, idea about the timeline for release? Do you know when that might be coming out? Yeah, it's or... coming out in April. It's, hey, uh, April. that's coming right up. I know. I'm really excited. I'm going to have some videos coming up in, uh, at the end of the month. I have my first video coming out. Awesome. Yeah. That's super exciting. Yeah. (laughs) And and there'll be marionettes in it. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I didn't even know I needed that, but I think I do. (laughs) You do. Punk rock marionettes. (laughs) That's right. Are those the main, that's the main project. So you said that you have some dates potentially coming up alongside that. I'm assuming to support that record. 
Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's the other thing is just like, um, we, before we started recording, Hillary and I were talking about, you know, the grown up uh, version of a, of a rock tour is like, okay, who can get, who can run the carpool? Who's going to sub for me at work? <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. So figuring all this stuff out is much more complex as you get older. And then as like, as I was saying, I am now not, I, I spent like 20 plus years being a school teacher and trying to book tours around like time my time off of school now it's like I'm pretty free I can go anywhere I can do whatever everybody so. ready to go come on yeah let's, let's go. go what do you mean <laughs> you have to work <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get in a little bit about talking about your experiences related to like gender identities and music and I had um a friend of mine, Denise, who has actually been my um, one of I had two folks that came in and replaced me at Girls Rock Rhode Island, which is now uh, Riot Rhode Island. And one of them, her name is Denise, and she is awesome. And when I told her that I was going to be interviewing you was so excited. I and I said, because she's just been following you for a long, long time. And and so and, you know, we it came up a number of times. And so I was like, do you have any questions for Alice, because I, I I feel like you've probably got some really good burning questions that you want to ask. And um, and she had a really uh, a number of good questions. And I'm going to start off with one of those. And this is her sort of um, preface to that. And it says, Alice was the first uh, Chicana femme who I felt represented my experiences as a Mexican teen in L.A. It was the too, too weird emo dark lipstick for your Mexican fam, but too Mexican for the white music scene situation. <laughs> So uh, her first question was, it says, in your book, B Violence Girl, you share a very vivid memory of being a teen in the 70s and getting to witness a public demonstration put together by the Chicano Moratorium Committee to fight the war in Vietnam and bring light to the high mortality among uh, Chicanx soldiers. Although you weren't able to join, it seemed like that moment was transformative for you in terms of identity as someone who identifies as Chicanx and uh, realizing the dangers that come with being a targeted minority and a group that was outspoken about injustice. So how does this frame the way that you would go about writing and playing music later on as a, as a Chicana? Well, I think that that experience was the first time that I realized that I was like part of a group that that was being discriminated against and uh i think up until then my world had been so small i grew up in an area where you know it, it's it's east la it's the barrio there everybody around me looked like me i didn't know except from like television or maybe going to the doctor and everybody you know in positions of authority in my life was did not look like me you know mm -hmm. uh so it started to it was an awakening for me to realize that i wasn't seen the same way in what i considered my country but i also had a very negative experience shortly after that because i wasn't i wasn't just a little brown kid i was a little brown weirdo kid who <laughs> like you know was outspoken i was awkward i dressed funny i you know i thought i was being fashionable when i like you know when i did quirky things and um so i also had an experience where i felt like oh i, I went up to 
a group that had set up uh, a Mecha counter. Mecha is this group of um, activists that work in schools and um, and organize Chicanx kids to like do political actions, but also just to find out about their own identities and feel connected to the community. But I had this really bad experience where I was walking over to a table they'd set up at my high school and and they started making fun of me and like saying like, why are you dressed that way? And, and I felt like, wow, this is a group that I thought would support me and they didn't support me. And at the time I, I stopped calling myself a Chicana for a while. I was just mm-hmm. like, that's not me. I'm, you know, a Mexican American and maybe I am not that. And it wasn't until years later that I decided, you know what, I'm not going to let that group of people define what it means to be Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx, whatever mm-hmm. the person wants to call themselves. It's not up to them to let me in. It's up to myself to claim it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I claimed it. It's like, yes, you can be a weirdo. You can be queer. You can be punk. You can, you know, shave your head and <laughs> put, or put day glow lipstick on or whatever it is and still be just as committed to the cause as the next person. Right. You get to claim, you get to, you get to define your identity. They don't get to de- define it for you. Yes. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. I think you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering too. So you've had like a variety of different identities and continue to like related to, you know, you're a young person in this like burgeoning punk scene. You were a teacher, a mother, activist, author, like all of these different identities. How has that how has have those identities played a role in your relationship to music as as your identities have changed or grown or anything like that? Well, I mean, that there are times when I write about, you know, from the point of view of those different identities. Like I was in a band called Stay at Home Bomb when I was a stay at home mom uh, for a very brief period of time, actually, because I was even when I was trying to stay home with my daughter. I was working, I ended up working part-time, but there was a sense of uh, not being able to play the music that I wanted to play full-time and feeling feeling like I was going to detonate, feeling like hmm. I was ticking inside because I was frustrated. So frustrated with that, with frustrated with, what, with, with the inability to like have a life outside of motherhood. Like I felt like, you know, like motherhood was for me an all-consuming experience. And even though my daughter, my daughters actually, because I have two daughters also, they are the most important things in the world to me. And I wouldn't give them up for anything and I wouldn't trade a moment of it. But the experience of motherhood for me was one where I felt like I didn't have time to to be creative. And for me, create being creative is like breathing. So for mm-hmm. a while I felt so like almost like dehumanized. <laughs> like I'm just, yeah. I'm just a machine that provides life support. Right. And, and it was, and it was very, uh, and I wrote from that perspective. Um, and of course now I'm like, Oh my God, I hope my daughter never hears those songs because she's <laughs> going to think I hate her. But uh, you know, <laughs> but I don't, it was just, uh, you know, I think people have to realize, especially the expectations of motherhood and, that we put on our, ourselves and that society puts on us are so unrealistic. Not everybody mm-hmm. has the experience of feeling supported and feeling 
you know, it, it can be a very lonely venture. Right, right. And it's it's interesting, too. I think that that is important in a couple of ways, first of all, and that you're talking about, like, you didn't feel like you were a full person, almost like you were, you know, and the, I think that, like, cre- the importance of creativity in one's life and for cre- making one into a person in some ways, letting pe- someone have their full personal expression is so important. And if you don't have that, then you can really feel like you're just <laughs> you are a robot in some ways yeah and then the community that that also alternately the creative creative community that that can provide yeah so if you're in a situation where you aren't able to experience those things as a lot of folks who are parents and a, a lot of times mothers in particular are then that's that's going to be a real problem yeah and I mean and also I was not surrounded by family at that time mm. I I have my community was musicians who were all out playing at all hours of the night, not really available to like come and sit with you at the park <laughs> right? <laughs> while your kid plays on the swings. So it was, it was like, you know, and it was once again, like looking online and trying to find like, Oh, can I find a, a group of parents that I want to hang out with at the park or to have a pay, play date with? And right. So anyway, sorry. I know I'm getting off topic here. No, 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 no. This was supposed to be about gear. It is about gear. We're totally talking about gear. Okay, let's let's just jump into that. Okay. Uh, How? So you've talked a little bit about GarageBand and a bit about your writing process. So can you talk a little bit about your general, like your your relationship with gear over the years, like where you were when you first started out, where you are now with it? Yeah. Oh God, my relationship with gear was always like. I was scared of it. I was like, oh, this is, this, I, I, I totally bought into like the mystique of the male expert. You know, mm, you'd see like, mm-hmm. I, cause I, I'd see a band and it was like these guys pushing pedals, turning knobs, doing, you know, it was, it was a mystery. And I, and it was also like the jargon that I didn't understand. If you, if you actually spoke to one of these musician male expert guys, it was just like, oh my God, what's, what's that person talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, so I really felt like very intimidated at first. I remember going with Patricia to, Patricia was my first bassist in a real band that bought her this huge road amp. And um, I have a, I, remember, I had a road amp. Yeah. They, oh my God. It was like a block. They're of, huge. Yes. It was it like was a, what, was it a 118 or something? Oh God. I don't remember. I, had I don't remember the, the number, but, huge the cab was huge and it was really heavy and Mm -hmm. I just remember like the guys at the at the store kind of like snickering you know and and as she and I you know took aside and like lifted it out and took it home Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that was my first experience my first experiences in a music store were of like you know kind of being ridiculed in a very like underhanded sort of condescending way for daring to think that we could buy equipment and play music. What kind of things would they, like how you say it was kind of condescending, what kind of things were happening? Well, the incident with Patricia was very early on, but I actually have another experience that I, that I remember more clearly. And this was when I was in, I was in this band called Cholita with um, Vaginal Cream Davis and mm-hmm. Fertile Latoya Jackson and Fertile and I at, I was the musical director of that band. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, 
Cholita existed as a performance group before it existed as a band. But once I joined, I started writing music. And I and because I played guitar, I was I I wanted to play live. So um, I had a bass, and I brought my bass up to Fertile Jackson, and I told I taught her how to play how to play the songs that we were playing which is you know the punk rock way to do it That's so right <laughs> so we'd been playing shows and and we were everything was going well and we were gonna play the uh new music seminar in new york and it was like so exciting for us that fertile decided she was gonna buy her own bass so we went to guitar center and no sooner had we walked in than this like you know condescending snobby guy comes up and starts like asking uh asking fertile what kind of bass he wanted to play right and um mm-hmm. and just kind of like going right over right over their their heads right just saying stuff like oh this one is played by so and so and just you know giving the spiel giving like so much information that was unnecessary instead of just saying here are the bases you know sit down and play a, a few and see which one you like or so eventually, the person that was working at the guitar center left us alone for a little bit, and Fertile started playing the Cholita songs, which were very basic. So, and you know, and the salesman is like kind of ignoring us, and then every now and then would come by and like try and bamboozle us, and finally. Brittle find found a base that she wanted to buy. And the the salesperson was just like, well, okay, so this is a good one for, you know, for a beginner, but maybe, you know, this um, or I'm sorry, this is a good one for like somebody who's playing out, but maybe you need more of a beginner base. And they're like, What where do you play? It's so like mostly like in, you know, your living room or garage or a student or whatever. And we're like, no, we played, and then we started listing the places we played, which were all like reputable places and we're mm-hmm. and we're going to New York and playing the new music seminar and then I just loved the moment when Fertile turned to the salesperson and said where do you play and it was like oh no I'm not in a band right now and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> and it, Zing. You know, it felt so good because his attitude changed and it was just like don't assume that because we're playing simple parts or because we look a different than you or because for any reason don't make assumptions about us sell us the damn base (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's a good one (laughs) yeah just do your job we're not here to be judged uh so what's your setup now so i know you play a number of instruments but you're predominantly singing right now what what's your general setup right now my general setup is a set of (laughs) earplugs (laughs) <laughs> now I, I you know I just I don't have I mean I would love to have my own like in-ear monitors and my a special microphone but I I don't I'm bad that way I just show up to a club use whatever they have and complain about the monitors and put a earplug in so I'm very <laughs> I'm the, I know I should be better do you, do you bring your own mic I don't I, I don't. see my I only have, concern I, about that is even less about m- less about sound and more about germs hygiene yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. 
I know. I, I should bring my own mic. I mean, my I also have bad experiences with like losing my mic or forgetting it in the heat of the moment, just yeah. forgetting to take it off. They're um, so small. If, if it's like if you're if you're responsible for this one thing, this one tiny thing, I feel like it's very easy to forget. Yeah. 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 And I, I do. I get like I don't know. I sometimes I'm on stage and I just go into like this like out of body experience where I mm-hmm. feel I forget. Like often I will have my drummer because I always put my purse down by her drum set and she'll come up to me and say, hey, you forgot your purse. <laughs> you left it by the drum set. <laughs> so so that's how I've forgotten my, my microphones before. So I don't always take my mic. Maybe it's like sunglasses. Like if you get a little bit less expensive microphone, then you're going to have it forever and you'll never be able to be able to get rid of it. But if you buy an expensive one, you'll immediately lose it. I know. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't see. I don't have that much to talk about. Talk about in terms of a microphone. I was. I I, fe- well, I feel shame too because no, like, you know I I see people who come. I was playing with Allison Wolf for a while. We were in mm-hmm. a band together, and she would come over to rehearsal, and she had this this whole little contraption that she she had like her pedals that she would you know put echo and delay and stuff on her voice just for rehearsal. I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm dang girl you are like showing me up (laughs) I mean it's I think some of that is personal preference too though sometimes you're like well you know you get a different experience when you're playing and during practice than you do on a stage anyway and it kind of like amplifies that when you're on stage yeah I mean I I feel like I probably should own it Uh, I should have more control of my own sound I've seen bands that are local bands they're not like huge acts that like come out and they have their own little like monitor system and in-ear monitors and I love that and I'm jealous but sometimes it's overkill you don't always need that right like you can operate perfectly fine without an in-ear system well I don't know (laughs) (laughs) maybe I don't but know. I, think, I don't know because I never, never listen to myself after I'm off stage. It's like I don't want to hear any recording. Who needs <laughs> to bother? It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that's an it's an interesting thing too because I do feel like the the experience that one has singing in a band versus playing a, a different instrument is unique, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, even like when I've I've been in bands where I played guitar and sang. I just feel like uh, I'm thinking about different things at once. You know, I'm like thinking about my guitar chords. I'm thinking about my vocals. And I really, when I, I think I've realized that I feel most immersed in the music when I don't have to think about anything except connection with my connection with the audience, which Mm. to me is the most important thing about the performance. So hopefully I've gotten to the point where I've practiced enough that I know the song well enough to pull it off but even if I don't and oftentimes I I come in at the wrong place or I'll wait two bars instead of four or eight instead of two (laughs) you know and and my band knows me well enough to cover for me but then there's this acceptance of the live performance as like a live performance is an interaction with human beings who might feel it differently at a different point in time. So I has, have just learned to embrace the live performance with all its uh, unpredictable beauty and ugliness. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what people go to live performances for, right? Like if you went up and just did exactly what the record is, like that's not going to be fun or interesting, right? <laughs> well, you know what's really funny is I, I remember having an experience at a concert once where... 
there was a, a person who a friend of mine closed her eyes and, during the concert and said if you close your eyes it sounds just like the record and I'm like why would you close your eyes <laughs> you're at a <laughs> that's concert. the point <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, unless you're doing some sort of like noise performance or immer yeah thing like that, I don't know why. Yeah, closing your eyes doesn't seem like the <laughs> the right answer there. But you know what? I'm not one to judge. No, I, yeah. If you want to close your eyes, go ahead. But what I don't okay. So I, I know this is not part of your interview, but I just have to put this in there. I cannot understand why people will watch the whole performance through their phone instead of mm. experiencing the hey, there's like a filter it's like watching it through a filter instead of just connecting with the performance in real time and i don't yeah, know yeah that's a whole other ph philosophical discussion that we could get into it's it is wild like how i mean and i think that in some ways using gear that makes you feel comfortable can allow you to be in your um, in the experience in a way that is useful in the way that using a phone to capture the experience takes you out of it. It's almost the reverse. Yeah. And I, you know what, and I do understand I have a, actually have a friend who is very self-conscious and feels like being behind the camera allows her a sense of anonymity and detachment that she, mm. that makes her comfortable. So yeah. I guess I, I shouldn't judge people. I just, uh, <laughs> I just, well, no, it, it's almost like it allows people a role, you know? Yeah, yeah, it can. I okay. don't know. <laughs> I won't be so judgy. <laughs> no, no, no. I I am on your side as far as this is concerned. I, I, I mean, you could talk around it forever as to, you know, whether it's a benefit or not. I do understand why some people use it. I think some people are doing it not for that reason, and that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard for me to relate to because so much of what I do is not about a performance it's about an interaction it's not like mm -hmm. i didn't rehearse these songs to stand up here and like try to sing them beautifully for you i came i rehearsed these songs so i could come out and give you my message and you know have an experience where we connect and feel each other's energy and you know it, it's more basic i guess although basic has the wrong connotation at this point <laughs> well <laughs> It's yeah, I, I it's a, it can feel more intense, I guess, perhaps if yeah. it doesn't have that filter in between. I, you know, you, you mentioned you have all these different experiences you had around like teaching, but you're also an activist. I'm thinking about where, where that line is, you know, so you're doing teaching, you're doing activism. When you're dealing with someone who is making an offensive comment to you in some way, or like doing some sort of other offensive behavior, um, whether that's like when you're performing at a show or at a you know music store or something like that, how do you weigh how much you want to teach in that moment versus how much you want to engage in activism and, and how those things are related or not related? Well, it's interesting that you said that because I think there's times when I just want to like punch somebody, you know, there's that, let's not exclude that option. There's times right. when I just feel like raw anger and I don't want to teach. I just want to like, retaliate right. so I, over the years i've you know tried to figure out like what is the best way to deal with this and it's not always retaliation although sometimes i feel like i'm gonna pour this water this bottle of water on your head until you cool down and stop like, <laughs> annoying me uh -huh. but you know i don't really get i don't get heckling on stage i did recently have an experience where somebody was 
telling me what they wanted to hear, asking me what to play and like talking when I was talking. And I thought that they were being out of line. And mm-hmm. so I, I just stopped and said, you know, I know I hear you. I see you. I know you have something to say, but this is my moment on stage. And I have something that I want to communicate. We, you and I can talk later. And, and that worked, you know, I don't know. That's I, almost I like the that teacher it, thing where you, where you just, you stand in front of the audience very quietly until everyone else is quiet. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and it's, sometimes <laughs> I think people just want to be seen and want to mm-hmm. be acknowledged. And I'm okay with acknowledging them. And also I'm okay with disagreeing with people, you know, like I don't say stuff that is going to be palatable to anybody, to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'm shouting my own beliefs and there's somebody might get up and shout back. A lot of times I think I am angry and aggressive enough that people don't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I put them off or if, you know, maybe they weigh their options and figure it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. I you have, have the microphone. Say, <laughs> I have the microphone and I also have, I, I grew up in an abusive household and I have rage and I have anger management issues. So as much as I am a grown up and I work actively work not to get out of control and let my, my rage come out and uh, destroy you know, the human connection I'm trying to make, I also have a limit. And there's times when like, if you push me, I'm going to push back. So people need to know that about me. It's not, it's <laughs> not, uh, I'm not, I'm not by any means somebody that it's safe to fuck around with. If I may be so bold. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, can say I appreciate that, on your that boldness. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's, that's the thing, right? So I feel like people are having these experiences and it's like, you know, there's all these different directions you can go with handling this. Right. And it's like, I don't have time to educate you right now. And I'm really pissed and I'm on stage with a mic. Here we go. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot so, of times that happens also not on stage, you know, just in right. the audience, there's mm-hmm. been times when I've been, you know, I'm standing watching a show and some like tall dude will come up and stand in front of me and then knock my drink out of my hand or mm-hmm. whatever I'm, you know, or so, I mean, I probably shouldn't be near the front of the stage with a drink. Okay. I'll accept that responsibility. <laughs> but the other way that can go is like, I dump my drink on your head or right. I push you like there's, there's other, other scenarios that are open to me and I like yeah. to keep my options open. Yeah. There's a wild world of options here <laughs> uh, that can be effective in very different ways for different reasons. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So I just have a couple more questions here. I wanted to know if you were speaking directly to folks in the music industry, someone who had like some sort of power position, whether it's a venue owner, someone who runs a gear company, music store, something like this, and they really wanted to make some sort of change. What would you recommend that they do to make change to increase equity and diversity in those spaces? I I think it's, I mean, it's as easy as hiring the people that create the, that change. I think you have to, sh- people have to know it's okay for me to be here because there's somebody else that's here like me. You know, you don't want to walk into a room and be like the only queer, or the only brown person or the mm. only woman, you know, then even if people say, oh, you're welcome here, you don't feel it. <laughs> you don't see anybody like you. So mm-hmm. you need to attract what you want. You, you have to, to show it first, either hire these people and make it make a statement by doing that, that you want more of it. Right. Great. I'm also wondering, this is kind of a follow-up from a question 
that Denise had, but I think it's related. What words of encouragement would you give to musicians who are cis women, trans, non-binary, uh, and also folks of color who feel who might feel isolated playing uh, in music spaces as a minority? I think it's about going into a space and making it your own and don't feel shy to be the first. And instead of feeling like maybe I don't belong here to think like I'm the first or maybe, you know, I'm one of a few, but I'm opening doors for other people. So I think if you think of yourself as like, you're having a dinner party and you're hosting people, you're coming in, your presence, you know, is in effect an invitation to others like you. And that is from, it, that actually comes from like being an awkward person. Sometimes I go into situations where I don't know anybody, you know, I'll go to my husband's business meeting or business dinner or something. And I don't feel like I really know anybody very well. So one of the tricks I use is to step into like the hostess shoes and be like, oh, hi, I'm this person. Have you met this other person? Do you know each other? And like kind of being, being playing a role as like a role that I'm really not, <laughs> where I'm really, I know I'm outside of my, of my role as the newcomer, but instead I take on the role as the facilitator. Like flipping it almost. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's a really interesting and a, you know, thoughtful technique. I think if people are able to feel comfortable doing that, that it's great. Yeah. And I, and not everybody's going to feel comfortable, but sure. I think sometimes if you do it, you get more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is coming. I don't know why this keeps coming back. Cause I feel like for me, when I go to parties, I like, I, ha I like having a theme or an activity for that reason. And I feel like almost having that specific role. Yeah. You know, can get you outside yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, are there any questions that I missed that you feel like I should have asked you so far? No, I have. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I was thinking in terms of like gear, and I have questions about. I'm just at the point where I'm finally having to deal with like renting tour gear because I've always mm. toured with other bands that are local or near like the area where I'm touring and mm -hmm. borrowed their gear. But now I'm in a position where I have to think about renting tour gear. Where do you find that mm. about that, Hillary? There's a bunch of different places, right? Like, <laughs> uh, I feel like they're in definitely in like larger cities. I know there's a number of them in California, which is probably not super helpful to you. I know locally to us, there's one in Boston. Another thing that I think um, a lot of the girls rock camps do is they would actually rent those out as well. Oh, good to know. Yeah. That's good to know because I'd rather support girls rock camp if I can. Yeah, I mean, and I, you'd have to work out the logistics, but there there are backline companies that that exist out there that I think specialize in that. But it has to be based out of a usually based out of a larger city. That's my understanding. Cool, that sounds yeah, great. But I've also been mostly oh. in your situation where you know either I'm bringing it with or borrowing borrowing another band. So, uh, and the other thing I wanted to say was in terms of girls rock camp, because we do have that in common also is that, mm -hmm. um, something that I learned from girls rock camp that I really needed. And it took me a while to learn it is that it doesn't bite. It doesn't break. You can mess around with it. You can experiment with it. Like learning to make gear, like demystifying gear is such a exactly. big part of girls rock camp that there's like a whole generation of female musicians that were not taught or were not given the 
permission, I guess, or we felt like we didn't have permission to touch all the knobs. <laughs> yeah, like, it's always about all the knobs. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, knobs I'll, are scary. Yeah, I feel like you feel like that for if you're not. I I also had that experience when I was younger, being scared of the knobs. So yeah. I feel like the the demystification of of knobs is, is yeah, super important. and gear in general. You know, it's mm -hmm. just the it's a toy. If you think of mm -hmm. it as a toy, and it's it would be really hard to break it then I think you give yourself permission to really create something new and exciting. Yeah, not making it some sort of like special, fancy, precious thing that only certain people can have access to or knowledge of. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I remember like going to show and seeing like, you know, somebody's pedals and seeing like, oh, what level are they using it at? Where are their mm. buttons? If I want to get that sound, if I want to get a, you know, I have to put my levels at these same markings, right? Instead of like just going home and trying a bunch of different things, I was like trying to duplicate a sound. Now that I know better, it seems silly, but when you're when you're just starting your experiences with gear, you might feel like there's a right way and a wrong way, but um, there isn't. Yeah, no right way, no wrong way. Everyone, everyone can do it whatever way they want, and that's part of the process. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing that up because I feel like that's something that I uh, is so so important and is really is a huge part of the work that Girls Rock Camps are doing. I'm wondering if you have other folks that you think that I should interview. Yeah, I have a whole bunch of folks I think you should interview. <laughs> Why don't you Do give you me like three tops? Okay, uh, I would say Lisa Flores, who mm -hmm. is a musician, producer, songwriter guitarist she does all kinds of things Lisa Flores is great I would say Carrie from Liberturettes oh you know who I would love for you to interview is Amy from Amon Sniffers okay those are a few names that's great nice job that was <laughs> that was great yeah I'm psyched to to get a chance to talk to those folks at some point that would be awesome how about Thea too interview Thea do you do whole bands or just you know, I haven't done that. There's there's a technology piece to that that I have to figure out. But uh, if I can figure that out, I would love to for sure. Just as far as like getting everybody's levels the same and using multiple microphones at once. So, okay, I'm gonna suggest one more person. Okay, Amber from Fatty Cakes. She's the lead singer and uh, lead electric ukulele player in Fatty Cakes and the Puff Pastries. A really cool band. Perfect. We have not had a, I've not had a ukulele player on yet so that actually is a great idea for a number yeah. of reasons yeah cool that is great i want to make sure that i have some way that listeners can stay in contact with you can you give them uh all of your pertinent information oh my pertinent information let me see well Which i will I also i will also include in the show notes so okay uh well i have a website alicebag.com i'm also on instagram alice underscore bag on Twitter, Alice Bag, on Facebook, Alice Bag. And that's it. I know there's some new thing. Oh, I know there's other accounts that I don't use as much. You don't need to have a TikTok account or anything yet, I think. Yeah, I know. I you do that... such a great job with your uh, social media <laughs> that you don't need any other platforms for now. <laughs> I, as well, your I social my, media my manager. Was, my daughter was shaming me the other day because I didn't know what TikTok was. And I we, somebody mentioned it and she's like, ah. It's only the biggest, most popular social media site. So yeah. I mean, sure, it'd be great if you used it, but you do such a great job with the things that you're on. 
I think I think it's great. So if you, if anybody is not currently following you on Facebook or Instagram, I probably Twitter. I don't do Twitter. See, there you go. Yeah, uh, we all have then, our favorites. There you go. See, then I I really implore you to check out Alice's social media presence. Always so much interesting inf- information. Just such a amazing archivist and documentarian as well of you know both your life, but also like the early punk scene more generally. Yeah, it's it's amazing, really. Thank you. Yeah. And keep it, keep an eye out for my new record and an ear open for it, too. Yes. And all the videos. I'm excited for all of this. I want to see some yes. marionettes. Yes. <laughs> things are going to get real really soon. Mm-hmm. Probably right when this comes out, right when this podcast comes out. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Alice. You are one of my favorite people. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you. It was great talking to you. I look forward to hanging out with you again soon. Please, yes. I just love Alice so much. I highly, highly encourage you to follow her on social media, listen to all of her music, watch all of her videos. I assure you, you will not regret it. So in our conversation, Alice spoke specifically about the idea of hosting a dinner party. And here, I'd like to think about the ways that companies are able to help create like positive, supportive spaces so that it isn't on the person who is the first, quote unquote, to do the heavy lifting in that space and take on that responsibility. So when starting the process of diversifying their hiring, companies basically are in the situation where they have like one of three major concerns, maybe all of them at the same time. So first they're like, oh my gosh, we need to do this as fast as possible. Let's go, go, go. And second is they have concerns about finding a quality candidate. And third, concerns about tokenism. And these are all related, of course, in different ways. So let's address some of these issues. So first, the urgency to diversify one's workplace is real and it is important. And yes, you should have done it a long time ago. And that's you know, that's just where we're at. But that doesn't mean that kicking it into overdrive, like just like with no plan is the way to go. And honestly, if you've waited this long, you know, it probably makes sense to just take the time to do it right. Right. So it's, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time discussing hiring here on the podcast and in my blog, but I'll reiterate here that one of the major problems that occurs for folks who move too fast is that they get really excited and they hire Uh, you know, a trans person or someone else from a press group and, you know, they want a badge for the hiring. But once they get the new hire, the hire hire quickly realizes that the company didn't do anything to prepare their current workforce for shifts in culture. And they didn't educate them around issues of gender identity. They didn't figure out ways to create an inclusive space. And lo and behold, the person quits within six months. And then the company is in such a rush to hire again that they don't do an exit interview and they never find out what happened. And then the whole thing happens all over again with the next diverse quote unquote hire. And, you know, so then we'll move into our second issue, right? So many companies then are worried that if they try to hire someone who's BIPOC and or try to hire a woman or LGBTQ person, they're going to have to lower their standards. And I'm going to share some important news here. Having lower standards or expectations for someone based on their identity is racism. 
It is sexism. It is heterosexism, etc. It is a problem. But so is only valuing, like, quote unquote, hard skills, right? So not valuing the experiences and new perspectives that come from a diversified workforce, hiring white men based on potential and everyone else based on past experience, or hiring only your buddies or your buddies' buddies forever and ever and ever. The issue is directly connected to the last concern here, which is that of tokenism. Tokenism is when you hire an individual simply because of their identity, who is then touted as your company's sort of like diversity, once again, quote unquote. And if you are hiring someone based on what your company needs and what this person can bring to the table and making this person's worth and the value of the skills they bring clear to both them and to their colleagues, especially if they don't have the same degrees or quote unquote hard skills as some of the other employees. Uh, then, you know, if you don't do that, then it's a moot point, right? So if you don't do that, as mentioned, you do nothing to support the person in their role, or you aren't doing the work to continue diversifying your hiring through policies, trainings, and the like, there's a pretty high likelihood the person will feel tokenized and they will leave. So how do you ensure that someone doesn't feel tokenized? So you need to make sure that they feel like they belong. Set the stage for their arrival with staff so you've created a culture that is inclusive and open to new ideas, perspectives, and identities. Make sure that they trust each other enough to have hard conversations about issues of privilege and oppression, about communication, and that they know how to apologize. And if you want more about that, uh, about creating space, anything related to that, I've discussed, as I'd mentioned, much of this in detail in other blog posts in previous episodes. So please take a, sh a look at the show notes um, and or on my website. And yeah, there's there's plenty of information there. I think I I wanted to specifically address some of the major concerns that folks have and how that's connected to some of the other issues that we've covered, um, because I think that those are real concerns and I understand them. I think it's just, you know, people need to acknowledge them and figure out where they're coming from and what to do with it. So if you have any questions or ideas, definitely reach out as well. If you enjoyed the episode, please share with friends or colleagues in the music industry and rate, review, and subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening.